It is good to be back, and uh, we are in the front end of a series that we're calling That's a Good Question. We're not dealing with curiosity questions. You know, where did Cain get his wife? And, you know, how did Noah bring dinosaurs on the ark? And where will I see Fluffy in heaven one day? You know, good, good, maybe those are good questions too. I don't know. But, but those questions, though they arouse our curiosity, make us think, they really are not going to impact our, our spirituality very much. We're talking about questions that have the potential to derail our Christianity, uh, questions that, that usher us to the crossroads. And we can go one way or the other. And if we don't answer these correctly, according to God's word, it can create some radically deformed disciples. And so our goal is to look at some of these questions that we might not even ask out loud, but sometimes we ask on the back of our mind in order to see what God's mind is on that. And so just by introduction to our question this morning, I got to tell you this story. It's a true, true story. I was in uh, Cincinnati. I was pastoring there. And my health had gone from active, you know, racquetball tournaments and all the, it wasn't very good. I lost them all, but I played racquetball. Now I have something to blame it on. Though. But racquetball and, and I was active to wheelchair in just a couple of months. And I had these incredible headaches and I've got this buddy who's a very staunch Presbyterian conservative minister. And he said, now, Mark, I've got this friend. Actually, it wasn't his friend. It was a friend of a friend. But I've got this friend who has a prayer ministry. And, and could, would it be okay if I picked you up and brought you to his office and he could pray for you? Well, I'm all into prayer. Okay, sure. So he came by and his wife came by and picked up Teresa and myself and brought us out to the suburbs, uh, northern suburbs of Cincinnati and ushered us into this uh, large church. They were having noonday meetings, believe it or not, middle of the week and several hundred people showing up for this. Um, we got there before the meeting was done, though, and so they put, brought me into the senior pastor's office, which was just huge. I laid down on this guy's black leather sofa, you know, was ushered and kind of held up by my wife. Uh, the meeting was done, and then in walks this gentleman, and actually was a, a special speaker. He was from Appalachia with his entourage of like five uh, people with him, five men with him. And he comes up to me at the couch, and we exchange niceties. And then he, he looks at his entourage, and he says, okay, y'all, gather around this boy and start praying in your prayer languages. And so these five guys get around me, and they start praying in tongues for me, and probably on the intensity scale one. Now, you've got to keep in mind, I grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist, uh, non-charismatic, maybe anti-charismatic sort of deal. And you've got these five guys around me praying for me in tongues all at the same time. And I'm, I'm just kind of, when my eyes are like this, I'm kind of going, well, okay, this is, this, yeah, all right, this is cool. This isn't so bad, all right? And then the, the leader, I noticed that his brow kind of furrows a little bit. And he puts his hand down on my stomach. And he starts to squeeze it a little bit. And then he just belts out real loud, you know, uh, casting demons out of me that he perceives are in me. And he's screaming. And part of it's in English and part of it's in, in tongues. And he's shaking my stomach. And suddenly the guys around me, they go from a 1 to a 10 plus immediately. And I'm looking up. And these guys are all animated. And they're, they're, going, they're going to town. And they're screaming out in tongues. And I'm going, this guy's shaking my stomach and casting demons out of me. And he's working his way up my torso. And I'm laying there going, huh, huh, all right, all right, uh, I'm God, um, you know, this is not my, my spiritual heritage. However, if you want to use this to heal me, hey, I'm cool. You know, I will change churches. Let's go for it. That's all right. 
And this guy's working his way up my torso, and these guys are all, and the intensity level keeps growing. I can't imagine this, but it gets, it gets louder and louder until he gets to my head, and he puts his hand on my face. He starts shaking my head. And I keep my head this terrible headache before. I met this guy, right? But he's, I'm thinking, this is healing. No, and he's shaking my head, and he's screaming out, and they're all screaming. And finally, you know, these guys are all sweating profusely. He, he finishes, and he backs up, and he says, okay, now get up. You've been healed. Dance, dance. Well, I'm not a good dancer, first of all, right? You know, what do you, what do, you do here? I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I'm, I, I've been on the tilt-a-whirl anyway. And by the time this guy got shaking my head, it's like the tilt-a-whirl's in hyperdrive. And so I'm standing up, trying to stand up. And they're, they're all, I must have been pretty good. I don't know, because they all were screaming, He's dancing! He's dancing! Hallelujah! He's been healed! And they take me to the door, and they kind of push me out the door, and they close the door, saying, Just keep saying you've been healed! And, and I'm... My, my wife and my Presbyterian friend usher me to the car. They put me in the front seat of the car. We start driving total silence in the car. <laughs> the, the Presbyterian friend's wife in the back seat says, <clears throat> Mark, isn't it amazing that you've been healed? I'm look, I, I am twice bad shape as I, when I came here. And that, then my friend says, yeah, I, I apologize. I had no clue. It really was a friend of a friend. I didn't know it was... It was inferred to me later on, uh, it was told me later on, that the reason why I wasn't healed is because I didn't have enough faith. If I would have had enough faith, then I would have been healed. Have you ever thought anything like that? That if I just had more faith, then obviously I would be healed, or my marriage would be put back together, or I would get a job, or what? But I just... I want to have more faith, but sometimes I struggle with my faith. And, and yeah, I don't maybe have the faith I need, and obviously I don't have enough faith. And so our question that we want to ask ourselves this, this morning is, how much faith is enough? Because here's what it, it does for me. It, it begs a very important question. It says, Harris, if you don't have enough faith to, to affect change in this temporal world, What's to make you think you've got enough faith to affect change in the eternal world? You don't have enough faith to bring about a physical healing. What's to make you think you have enough faith to bring about a spiritual healing? Maybe you're not redeemed, but you just think you are. You don't have enough faith for it to work here, but you've got enough faith for it to work over here. How does that work? Well, I, that's a good question. And I have seen folk, and maybe you have too, who... who Try to have faith and then denying reality and just hoping about anything, that this is going to be, it's going to be. And when it doesn't happen, they walk away or their confidence in God is eroded pretty intensely. So how much faith is enough? Do you have enough faith this morning? That's that's a key question. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four case studies in, in Matthew chapters eight and nine. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter Eight. We're going to be at eight and nine. If you didn't bring your Bible, uh, there should be one located in front pew in front of you. I don't know the page number. That's a table of contents or four. You can figure that out. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. Um, head to the store this week. Get one of these things. It, fantastic. Uh, God answers a lot of our questions. His goal is not that we're living in the dark or that we're making up the answers ourselves. So, so Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at, at four different case studies. And the first case study is a case study for strong or great faith. 
This is a, this is a, a incident that Jesus comes across with a, a pagan centurion. So Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, centurions were pretty much the backbone of the Roman army. It's not like all the other high-ranking officers who could kind of direct from a distance. The centurions were right next to their guys in the foxholes. They were the, the first ones leading the charge. They were the last ones to retreat. And so the entire uh, Roman army, but especially the centurions, did not normally have any respect for conquered peoples. Because these conquered peoples had just recently been holding swords and bows shooting at them. And the only reason they don't have one now is because the, the Romans had taken it away. But they knew that in their heart they still had swords for, for them. And so there's this incredible animosity, especially between the Romans and the Jews. But here, this is, this is amazing. You've got a Roman centurion who treats a conquered Jew. And keep in mind, Jesus' public ministry has not been that long yet. But he treats him with incredible respect. Matter of fact, he treats him as he is superior. He says, my home. It's not worthy to have you come to it. He recognizes something. And look at, notice the, the illustration he uses in verse 9. He says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and to that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion realizes that, that he can't command people to do things and have them do it just because he's such a great guy. But only because he's wearing a Roman uniform. He knows that authority is really in Caesar. And the Caesar kind of dishes some out to his uh, high-ranking officials. And then his high-ranking officials dish some of that power out to those guys underneath them. And then they dish some out to their executives. And then they dish it out to their underlings. And finally it gets to the centurion. And the centurion recognizes that the only reason people listen to him is because he represents Caesar. And to disobey him is really to disobey Caesar. And he looks, he ties this to Jesus. And he says, I tell people to go and do stuff and they do it. But you, you tell disease to leave and it goes. You tell wind to stop blowing and it listens to you. You tell demons, hell, to leave and they have to do it. I mean, I represent Caesar, but you, you represent God. The centurion understood something of Jesus' identity. It was huge. And look, in verse 10, it says, When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, you can see where the, the Jesus is coming from. First of all, there's only twice in the Bible where Jesus himself is astonished. Once because of great faith here. And then once, I think it's in Mark, of weak faith. Jesus is astonished. But here's this pagan Gentile centurion who pretty much recognizes who Jesus is. Meanwhile, the whole nation of Israel, they've got the Old Testament, which bears witness to him. They've got the prophecies that say, be looking because the Messiah is going to come. Talking about him. 
that says, here's the things he will do, talking about him. And somehow they're not able to see it. But here's this, this pagan centurion who doesn't have the word, who didn't grow up in the temple, who doesn't. Have, but he's seen some of the things that Jesus has done, and it clicks to him. I know who this guy is. So Jesus says, this guy's got great faith. Now, what does great faith look like? Just a couple of things as we look at this passage. Really, really important. Two, two things. First of all, great faith recognizes Jesus' authority, and it recognizes Jesus' identity. Now, that, that's huge for us. That's, please, please pay attention here. Because if you grew up in the evangelical church, sometimes what we think faith is, is just simply recognizing the identity. It's just being conscious of certain facts. I'm conscious of the fact that there was Jesus, that he was the son of God, that he died, that he rose again. I'm saved. Well, are you saved? Is that faith? According to James, James 2.19, he says, demons believe that. You're not going to see them in heaven. Faith is, is more than just recognizing historical facts. It's part, that's part of it. You have to know the right, the right thing. But it's also understanding Jesus' authority. The centurion recognizes that Jesus is God. He's over all. That means he's over him. And so he submits his life to Jesus. He comes to Jesus looking for help, not demanding that Jesus do things for him. He lays out his request. He's God. He does what he wants to do, but he submits his life. Two aspects to saving faith. I recognize who Jesus is, his identity. But then I get to a point in my life where I surrender my life to him. And I bow my knee and I say, Jesus, you are in charge of me. And maybe again, maybe this is all the sermon anyone, some of the folk in here need. You've grown up just over here. You know all the, the facts. But you've never gotten to a point where you've surrendered your life to Christ. Don't go walking around thinking that you're in because you know the facts. The demons know the facts. You need to surrender your life to him. Well, what is the result of Great faith. Verse 13. It says, Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now you might say, Well, this proves my point. If you have great faith, you can accomplish great things. Great faith equals great things. Itty bitty faith equals itty bitty things. But great faith. See, and I don't have great faith. If I had great faith, great things. And that would be a normal, perhaps, a conclusion if you took this passage by itself, if you subtracted it out of its context. But this is a great, this is a great, let me say point, but a great rule of, of hermeneutics that, that for a doctrine to be considered biblical, it's got to take into account everything that the Bible says. You can't pull a verse here and pull a verse there and make a major doctrine about it. That's how the cults get rolling. You can't do that. You take all of what the Bible says, especially in its context. And so I'm going to, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to lay my, my stuff on the table on the front end. That it's not about the bigness of your faith, but about the bigness of the one your faith is in. That's, that's what I think the text is going to show us. Now, you might not see it here because this guy had great faith, something we should, we should press on towards. But I think if we take Scripture as a whole, we'll see beyond that. Case study number two. 
Uh, case study number two is in chapter 8, verse 23. And here you see a case study for weak faith. And it's amazing that this is not a Gentile. These are his disciples, for crying out loud. In chapter 8, verse 23, it says, Then he got into the boat with his disciples, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Now, the parallel passage in Luke lets us know that that day when they, when they took off, there were a lot of little boats, other boats, out on the lake. Seemingly insignificant fact. No, all Luke is telling us is this was a normal day. Nobody saw this storm coming. This came out of the blue. It was a normal day. And you also got to keep in mind that these, these guys that got in the boat with Jesus, they grew up here on Galilee. They were experienced fishermen. They weaned on the side of the boat, for crying out loud. They had seen many storms. This was just part of their life. But they'd never seen one like this before. And halfway across the lake, the storm kicks in. Now, Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, and so it's not incredibly strange for the, the hot humid air to rise and to drag in cool air off the high desert and just to churn up the surface of the waters. But this one was a little bit different. Now, you you picturing what it says here? I mean, this boat is being flunked all over the place. And these guys are hanging on to the mass and they're hanging on the sides and water's coming in and they're trying maybe to bail it with their little bucket and then more waves are coming in and, and they're being thrown out almost and they're hanging on and their, their hair's all hanging down to soaking wet. And have you ever been in these major storm? Perfect storm. Think perfect storm, right? And the wind and the waves and the noise of, of all of this happening is just deafening. And they're in the back of the boat. Jesus is sleeping. This is probably the greatest miracle. Jesus isn't pretending to sleep, you know. Now, Jesus is not pretend. Jesus doesn't pretend. Jesus is sleeping. And, you know, the amazing thing is you don't find too many references in Scripture about Jesus sleeping. You find some. I mean, not, not too many. And it's not that he didn't. But, but if you see one, it needs to raise a flag in your mind. I wonder why he put this here. Now, knowing what you know about Jesus, do you think this storm was kind of an accident? Maybe he orchestrated this storm just as he orchestrated the nap because he had to teach his disciples something about his identity. They didn't know what they didn't know, which is really the, the case for most all of us all the time. Is that You don't know what you don't know. They thought they understood who Jesus was, but not really. And so Jesus needed to knock them off their high horse a little bit to show them. It says in verse 25, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. You know, the boat's flipping all over the place. And one of them works his way along the edge of the boat and pulls the tarp off of Jesus or whatever else. And Jesus kind of raises his head. and He's got his hair, you know, soaking wet. And they're all soaking wet. And the noise and the wind's blowing. And he's hanging out of the mass. And maybe he says, well, uh, uh, sorry to wake you, Jesus. You know, I just, but uh, we're going to drown. And just thought maybe you'd, you'd want to join us. You know, I don't know what he's saying. He's trying to wake up Jesus and, and get Jesus' opinion on what's going on. And he's freaking out here. And it's just so interesting. I love the, the, the thought of what could be going on. Uh, Jesus, first of all, he says, verse 26, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Now, little does not mean a size, like you can measure faith that way, as much as the term means anemic. It means empty. It means dysfunctional. Your faith is a mess. You got it all mixed up. You got it wrong here. 
You notice where great faith is, fear is not. And where fear is, great faith is not. But, but he rebukes them a little bit. Now, we got to give them some room there in the middle of a transitionary period between the Old and New Testament, all that transitionary period. But Jesus, still by his rebuke, is expecting them to have understood, just like maybe the, the centurion did. And so he rebukes them of their small faith. What is the result of little faith, weak faith? And let me ask you, can you relate to these guys just a little bit? Normal day? You didn't expect anything to go wrong. I mean, it always works this way, doesn't it? You're going through the day. Everything's fine. It's a sunny day. Little boats are out on the lake. Things are looking good. Your mind is filled with a myriad lesser things. And then all of a sudden, wham, you get blindsided. And maybe when you get blindsided, you react in such a way that later on you catch yourself. And you go, I really didn't respond with great faith there. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Am I the only one? It's, it's, it's a normal experience. You can relate a little bit with these guys. But what's the result of, of, of weak faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The result of weak faith was com- Jesus answered. It was completely calm. He didn't just, didn't just slow down the waves a little bit because their faith was, was small. He didn't just, just die down the wind a little bit because their faith was small. Complete. The the, the result of weak faith was the exact same result as that of great faith. You see that? And that's because of this. It's because it's not about the bigness of your faith, but about the bigness of the one your faith is in. Can you say that with me? It's not about the bigness of your faith, but the bigness of the one your faith is in. That's an incredible lesson. It's not how good I am or how much I can pull this off or how much I can Tinkerbell believe regardless of the odds, make it happen, deny reality. But it's about the bigness of the one my my faith is in. Third case study. Chapter 9. Let's turn a, a page. This is the case study of impure faith. Jesus is going to go to a single gal who's really struggling here. Chapter 9, verse 20. It says, Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, a couple things. First of all, this gal was bleeding for 12 years. Uh, the The... Commentators tend to let us know and infer that this bleeding was from her womb. Now, if it was from her womb, she would have been unclean. It would have been against the law for her to be out and about, especially her trying to touch somebody. But, but desperation makes us do desperate things sometimes, doesn't it? And look at this gal's faith. This, this is amazing me with that. She said that if I can touch his cloak... I will be healed. And I wonder when I read this, where did she get that from? Where in the world did she come up with that idea? I mean, that kind of concept was going to lead the medieval church to to worship and venerate relics. You know, they found a piece of wood that supposedly came from the cross of of Jesus. And so people came from all over to look at it and touch and get near it because somehow the blessing would come off on them, they thought. 
Uh, this was similar to what was going on in, in Acts 5 when the people thought that maybe if, if Peter's shadow touched them, they would be healed. And so I look at this and I go, where in the world did this gal come up with this? If I just touch his cloak, what is that about? There's a degree perhaps of superstition involved in her faith. Her, her theology was not necessarily per- perfected here. Now, again, we've got to give this gal some, some slack because of where she's been. First of all, she, with this bleeding for 12 years, was this associated with any kind of pain? One can only imagine. Chronic pain for 12 years? Physically, she was in pain. Emotionally, she was in pain. Bleeding from her womb, small town, the gossip would have traveled incredibly. What was wrong with her? Why is she, how come God's not healing her? Is this a curse? Socially, she would have been in pain because her social schedule would have been cleared for 12 years if she's unclean, isolated, alone. Financially, she's in pain. The scripture tells us in the parallel passage especially that, that she's bankrupt because she gave all of her money to doctors who've been promising her they would heal her. And no, there's no healing. And in an era where there's no social security, this gal is in trouble. Spiritually, she's in trouble. Because as being unclean, she's not allowed to go to the temple. That's not like not going to church. The Jewish temple is the only place you had forgiveness of sins. So she's cut off from God as well. I mean, she's in all kinds of hurt here. And so giving her a little bit like, I don't know if you can relate to some of the pain that this gal might be dealing with. I don't know if you can relate to some of this thought that maybe my theology is not perfect. God, I'm confused about some things. I don't understand some stuff. I'm really not sure about this, that, or the other thing. And you can see Jesus coming to her and saying, listen, lady, I don't know where you got this idea about touching my... But I'm telling you what, you need to go read a theology and get your theology straightened up. And then you come back and I'll, we can, we'll see what we can do here. Let's, let's get our theology in line first. But what's the result of impure faith? Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Because it's not about, right, the bigness of your faith, but the bigness of the one your faith is in. And that's so refreshing to know that when I get to the gates of heaven, he's got, Jesus is going to stop me and says, hang on, hang on. Before we let you in, we've got a theology test that we want to submit. And you have to score above a 90% before we can let you in here. It's like, oh, for crying out loud, this, I mean, we're in all kinds of trouble, right? I mean, if in fact this is what it requires, then either John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul are going to be left at the gates because they are diametrically opposed on some things. I mean, everybody is, is, is not seeing things the exact same way on some of the secondary issues. And so it makes you wonder. But we have to get back to the point. Again, I'm not suggesting negligence in our theology. I'm not suggesting that we, we hang on to weak faith. But I am reassuring us with what Scripture says, that it's not about the bigness of my faith, but about the bigness of the one my faith is in. Fourth case study. Verse 27. This is a case study of... Uh, Careless faith. Jesus talks with some blind Jewish men. And in verse 27, he says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Now, they did believe this, not just because they said that. They affirmed his question. But they called him son of David. 
Now, that's not a title you could throw on anybody who was from the line of David. That was a messianic term. These blind guys recognized that Jesus was what the Old Testament was pointing to. And that they went and said, yes, we believe you can do this. And so on verse 29, it says, then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Now, he's not saying according to the proportion of your faith. This is how we read it sometimes. Otherwise, maybe one of the guys gets 20-20 because he had great faith. The other guy, ah, he's just very nearsighted. He got a little bit because, see, his, his faith wasn't as good. Or maybe got, Jesus just would heal one eye and let the other one stay blind because his faith wasn't perfect. It's not according to the proportion of their faith, but according to the faith they had in him. That, 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 that's the difference. And go on and look what it says. It says that Jesus warned them sternly. See that no one knows about this. Have you ever warned your children sternly? You didn't just warn them. You warned them sternly. What do you do when you warn them sternly? Don't you ever. I'm going to break you. I'm going to ever just warn. You warn them sternly. Jesus warned the blind men sternly. I don't know. All right, listen, boys. No one knows about this. You got it? Got it? No, I, you see me? No one. You got to tell me, right? No. Good, good. You got to say the word, right? Jesus warned them sternly. But look what they do. Isn't this wild? But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. They didn't just tell their spouse by accident. You know, they told everybody. Oh, we won't tell anybody. Hey, guys, what happened? Look, check this out. Jesus did this. They told everybody. Now, don't you think? Jesus knew these guys were going to be disobedient. They weren't, maybe they weren't trying to be malicious. Let's give them the benefit of a doubt. But they were being disobedient all the same. They were warned by Jesus sternly. It was very clear. I guess Jesus is a pretty good communicator. Very clear what he expected of them. And they blew him off. And Jesus knew that he was, they were going to blow him off. And what did he do here? Did he, did he bring them in and say, listen, y'all, I would heal you, but I know your heart. It's disobedience all over the place. And you're going to go out and disobey me. You really don't care about my words. And so I'll tell you what, you need to go off and you need to, to deal some, do some work with, with, with my father. And you need to be more sanctified and you need to get your act together and not fail so much. And then come back to me and I'll see if we can work out a healing. But what was the result of their careless faith? The result was that Jesus answered. is that wild? The exact same result of careless faith was the same result of impure faith, which was the same result of weak faith, which was the exact same result of great faith. Because it's not an issue of the bigness of my faith, but of the bigness of the one my faith is in. That's huge. Now, as we, we, we bring this home, just, just think about one, one more thing. I've got to underline this a little bit. That for faith... To be operative, biblically speaking, it's got to be founded in the right object. You, you know what I'm saying? If, if I have faith in people just say, just have faith, man, it doesn't matter, just have faith. Well, if I've got faith in the, in the, the words of Confucius or some, some philosophical or political ideology, or if I've got faith in some uh, hedonistic or materialistic or power ambition, you know what? That will direct my resources and my energy in my life. But biblically, that's powerless. That's empty. Let me... Let me I'll give you an incredible example on this. In in First Kings eighteen, it's a great example. Uh, you know this story, prophets of Baal story. Uh, 
you know, shoot out on Mount Sinai kind of thing. You've got Elijah over here. You've got 450 prophets of Baal over here. They've got a deal, and they say, okay, let's do this. Let's each put out a sacrifice. You guys pray to your God. I'll pray to mine. And whoever sends fire and blows up the sacrifice, he's God. Okay, that's a good deal. So, so it says, uh, talking about verse 25, Elijah said, and I don't have this on the screen, but Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl, giving them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. I don't know when morning starts, but that's a long time. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. You had 450 folks show up for this prayer meeting. And they prayed all day. And I'm guessing they had lots of faith. And they were very sincere. And they were very animated. They prayed all morning. Then they prayed all afternoon and they got louder. They shouted. And they were frantic, the scriptures. I'm guessing at the end of the day, these guys are just straight up exhausted. They're bleeding. They just gave, they, they gave it all. They left it all on the prayer field. But no one answered. Elijah steps up. One guy. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, he's not dancing, by the way. Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that the people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. If you slow down, you can pray that prayer in 30 seconds. Prophets of Baal, 450, praying all day. Elijah, one man, 30 seconds. No one listened. No one heard. Elijah gets done with his prayer. Because it's not about the bigness of your faith, right? I'm guessing these guys had lots of faith. Maybe they have as much faith as Elijah did. But the problem was they had it in the wrong place, in the wrong person. But if that which your faith is in is true and real, God hears, God answers. You know, D.A. Carson just brings this home with an incredible illustration. Let me read this for you. He says, it's, it's the night of the very first Passover. Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, two Israelites, have observed the succession of plagues that have for the most part occupied Egypt, but sometimes spilled over into Goshen, where the Israelites live. They are having a conversation over the back fence. Mr. Jones confesses deep worries over the coming night. Of course I'm concerned. Shouldn't I be? God has sent waves of plagues, frogs, flies, darkness, water turning to blood. But this latest announcement is frankly terrifying. The loss of the firstborn of every household in Egypt. The nation will be shattered. But haven't you done what Moses said and daubed the sides of posts and lentil with blood from the Paschal lamb? Well, of course I have. I'm an Israelite just like you. But a blood stain or two seems like a strangely weak way to stop the ravages of the angel of death. I'm terrified for my son, and I don't know what else I can do to ensure his safety. Mr. Smith sighs. You've done all you need to do. You know that I've got a son, too, 
And I'm perfectly confident that he's safe. God has promised through Moses that in households where the blood is applied as stipulated, the firstborn male will be safe. Don't you think God will keep his word? Where's your faith? When Mr. Jones replies, he is hesitant and troubled. Please don't give me moralizing sermons about faith. I'm scared and that's all there is to it. I've sprinkled the blood around just as God said, but I'm frightened for my son. And I wish I could do something to guarantee the safety. That night, the angel of death death passed through the land. In most houses, there was loud weeping and wailing as the firstborn males died in huge numbers throughout the land. Now, the question is this. Which man, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones, lost his firstborn son? The answer, of course, is neither. Mr. Jones had great faith. Mr. Jones had weak faith. Excuse me, Mr. Smith had great faith. Mr. Jones had weak faith. But both had shown enough faith to dab the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. Beyond that, the outcome depended utterly on the reliability of the promises of God. Carson goes on to say this. He says, we do not wrench blessings from Jesus by somehow increasing the intensity of our faith. Granted, if we have any genuine faith at all, what is far more important is the faithfulness of Jesus. And ironically, when we focus on that, we find our own faith strengthened as we come more greatly to appreciate the one on whom our faith rests. This week, we, we, we need to strive for great faith. And the way we get great faith is spending time in God's word, focusing on Christ, having our confidence built in him. But in the process, we need to be reminded that it's not about the bigness of my faith. Tomorrow, Tuesday, you need to say to yourself on the way to school, on the way to work, it's not about the bigness of my faith but about the bigness of the one my faith is in. Let's pray. I thank you for that so much, God. I stumble and trip and fall so often, and other times I think I'm doing well, and you probably are up in heaven shaking your head, and yet you are faithful. You're, you're reliable. You know I am your, your child, and you love me like only a father can. You love your children. And God, as we go through our lives here on earth, waiting for our faith to be made sight, would you remind us, God, would you remind us to to, to be on a quest to, to know you better, to understand you, to have Jesus shine in our life, for us to be more pure and to have brighter light? I would pray that would be our quest. It would be my quest. I pray it. But God, would you remind us that in the midst of our tripping and falling and misunderstanding and overreacting, that it's not about the bigness of our faith, but about your bigness, the one our faith is in. Would you remind us as we deal with our issues this week, as we deal with that which has come our way, that we need faith in order to respond properly. Would you remind us of that in Jesus' name? Amen.